I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Colossians chapter 3. If you're new with us this morning, um, for the last several months we've been studying through the book of Colossians, usually taking paragraphs at a time, but this morning's text will be primarily one verse. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11 is where our study brings us to this morning. When you get there, let's go ahead and we'll read our text together, and then we'll pray together for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Colossians chapter 3, I'm actually going to start in verse 10. Paul says, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Lord, there is no one like you, as we've sung this morning. The self-sustaining God, the creator, sustainer of the universe, the one supreme and sufficient Savior, the only one who is worthy of worship and adoration and praise. And God, we ask that you would make yourself known to us today through the preaching of your word, that you would continue your work of conforming us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we believe this morning that by the power of your Spirit and through the truth of your word, through its preaching and teaching, that this is how you accomplish that goal. So Lord, we yield ourselves to you this morning and ask that you would continue your work in us for the sake of your name and your glory. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Our society today feels more divided than it's ever been. I don't know if that's true in reality. You can go back in history to other points where there are greater tensions. We haven't yet um, descended into civil war in the United States, but it feels very divided today. And for many of us, at least in our generation, it feels worse than it's ever been. There's political division, racial tensions, there's ideological warfare that's going on all around us. And the modern media, whether it be television or the internet or radio, Social media, it's sort of shrunk our world and amplified the loudest voices. So we tend to hear from the angriest people about everything that's wrong all the time in all places. And if we're savvy, we'll probably recognize that some people have made a career out of that, feeding on fear, stirring up animosity, because it's really an effective strategy for people who make money off of our attention. Clicks equal money. Or it's an effective strategy for some who want to gain influence through stoking envy and anger and outrage. You can rile everybody up and get people divided into groups, us versus them, and then gladly take your place as the self-appointed leader of new ideological armies. That's the world we live in today, but that's only part of the story. The real reason that there is division and animosity and antagonism and fear between competing groups, it's not because of corporate media companies. It's not because of politicians. It's not because of the internet, social media, all of that stuff. The reason for division in society is sin. Since the first sin in the garden, if we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, we see that man fell. And the first casualty of man's sin was a ruptured relationship with God. But the second casualty was a ruptured relationship with one another. Adam and Eve became competitors at that moment. Sin shatters our relationships with each other. 
we resort to blaming and accusing. Right there in Genesis chapter 3 and then into chapter 4, we see resentment and envy and murder as the first fruits of sin taking root in the human heart. This is simply how things are in the world. But friends, this is not how things are supposed to be in the church. The church is to be a united body in the midst of a fractured society, a place where, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled with God through faith in Christ and therefore reconciled with one another. Here in Colossians chapter 3, in our text this morning, Paul affirms an incredible and a powerful truth that among the redeemed, among those who are saved by Christ and being made like Christ, all those earthly categories become secondary. Hostility is dissolved. Pride is forsaken. Bitterness is released. Envy is abandoned. Because our primary identity, our shared identity, is Christ. The central point this morning that we see in our text is that the supremacy of Christ is seen in the spiritual equality and unity of the church. The supremacy of Christ is the theme of this book of Colossians. That Christ is supreme. That he must be, in all things, preeminent. And we see here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, the supremacy of Christ in the spiritual equality in unity of the church. Our text this morning comes at the end of a larger section that deals with our battle against sin. If you remember over the last several weeks, we've seen that as those who are united with Christ through faith, we have new life. Chapter 3, verse 1 says we've been raised with Christ. And in verse 4, that Christ is our life. We have new life, new identity with him, and a new shared destiny when he appears we also will appear with him in glory. And Paul says the necessary implication of our new life in Christ is that we are to put to death the sin that remains in us. We see that command in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he continues on that we are to put off the sins that characterized our old lives. We see that in verse 8. And the reason for this war against sin, the reason that you and I are called to put sin to death and put off the sin that characterized our old life is first of all because of the wrath of God. Paul told us that in verse 6. It's because of sins like these that the wrath of God is coming. We have to take them seriously. We cannot wink at them because God does not wink at them. But a second reason Paul gives us to put sin to death and to put off sin is not just because of the wrath of God but because of the grace of God. As we saw last time together, who we were before Christ is no longer who we are now. And who we are now is not who we will be because God is at work transforming us, conforming us into the image of Christ. There's been a radical change of heart that takes place. When you and I repent of our sins and trust in Christ, he changes us on the inside and begins a gradual process of change on the outside. This process of change is God's plan for each of us. We are being made, if we are born again, being made like Christ. And this is referred to here in chapter 3 as a gracious renewal, a restoring of the image of Christ, a recreation in which a new humanity is being formed. And so the question arises, what does this mean for the way we understand who we are? If, we're, if we've been changed, if we've been united with Christ, if we're being conformed into his image, then who am I? 
and who are you? How are we to categorize ourselves? How are we to see others? Well, Paul tells us. He upholds the supremacy of Christ in the church by, first of all, a denial. We see this in verse 11, a denial. Paul says that worldly categories are not significant in the church. This is the denial in verse 11. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Why does Paul have to tell us this? Well, apparently at the church there in Colossae, false teachers were spreading attitudes of exclusivity, dividing people into classes, the haves and the have-nots, those with this higher mystical knowledge and those who were as of yet uninitiated, dividing them up into groups like Jews and Gentiles, insiders and outsiders, those who were clean and those who were unclean. We saw some of their false teaching back in chapter 2, if you remember that. But Paul says that these are not meaningful distinctions when it comes to our standing in Christ. Notice how he begins chapter 3, verse 11. He says, here, here, there is not Greek and Jew. This little word here, if you're looking at the ESV this morning, is an important word. What is here referring to? I was talking with Will Moneymaker before we got started this morning. If you've got the New American Standard Bible, it's got a little phrase in italics. It says here, well, instead of saying here, it says in this renewal, right? Is that what you've got in the NASB? In this renewal. Here is actually pointing back to something in verse 10. That's why I read verse 10 when we got started this morning. Look with me in verse 10. Verse 10, it says that you, speaking of those who are in Christ, have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So when the English Standard Version says here, it's referring back to those people who are part of this renewal. Those who have put off the old self and those who have put on Christ. Those who are becoming like Jesus. So when Paul says that there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, etc., he's speaking about the church. He's speaking about those who have experienced a radical spiritual change. So he's not talking about mankind in general. He's not talking about society and culture in general. This is a spiritual reality, true of those who are united with Christ through faith. So you can't take this verse and apply it to everybody in all places. This is something that is a blood-bought reality for the church. To understand the magnitude of this statement, we have to realize that formerly, before we were in Christ, there were barriers. There were distinctions, there were categories that separated us, barriers that were far more intense than anything our current society is facing. And Paul refers to several of these. It's not an exhaustive list, but a representative one. First, he refers to national and ethnic barriers. He starts off with Greek and Jew. Greek here can be thought of as nearly synonymous with Gentile. If you understand your your history, you'll know that there were various empires that rose and fell, and one of those empires was the, the Greek Empire. And at that time, um, is actually before this time, before this was written, the Greek Empire spread throughout the known world. And as they spread with power and authority, they took with them their language and their culture, their philosophies, their patterns of education. And so much of the known world adopted this Greek culture. And so even if you didn't have Greek blood, many people referred to all of civilization as being Greek 
Later, when the Roman Empire emerged, there was a change in who was in charge. But the Romans had been largely influenced by Greek culture as well. And so the Greek language was still the predominant language. And Greek culture and thought was still pervasive throughout the known world. From a Jewish perspective then, you could almost say that there are Jews and there are Greeks. The Jews had been largely resistant to many of those those Greek cultural trappings. But they were fluent in the Greek language. That's one reason why the New Testament was written in Greek. Because that's what everyone spoke. That was the common language. And it allowed the gospel and, and the scriptures to spread like wildfire throughout the early church. But we have to understand that the Jews had a strong revulsion towards outsiders, towards those who were Greeks, Gentiles, those who were not descendants of Abraham. They would not eat with them. They would not set foot in their houses. They viewed them as unclean. And needless to say, that didn't make them very popular with their neighbors. As you can imagine, it's not a good way to make friends and influence people, right? But when the gospel spread throughout the first century, one of the biggest challenges to the early church became, how should we understand and adapt to this notion of Jews and Greeks being together in the same spiritual family, treating one another as brothers and sisters, as equals? Paul says here, you can't categorize people simply as Jews and Greeks. That's a cultural and national ethnic distinction. But secondly, he gives us a religious distinction. He refers to those who are circumcised and uncircumcised. Closely related to this idea of being Greek and Jew is that of circumcised or uncircumcised. But this is more specifically a religious distinction. God had given the sign of circumcision to Abraham in the Old Testament as a sign of the covenant. Precious, unconditional promises made by God to his chosen people. Circumcision symbolized God's promise to the children of Israel and marked them out as being distinct and separate from all the other families of the earth. Because of this, the Jews often saw those who were uncircumcised as being unclean and outside of the covenant, ineligible to receive the promises of God. But when Christ came, things changed. Through faith, even the Gentiles are counted as Abraham's heirs. Paul and others had to go to great lengths to help people see, like in Galatians 6.15, that neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You see, that original promise to Abraham included this idea that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And when Jesus came, he came to bring that blessing through the descendant, of Israel, Jesus, to all, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Those who were formerly outside the promise, through faith, now can belong. Paul says this old religious distinction is no longer relevant in the church. But there's further distinctions that Paul addresses. There are some serious cultural distinctions. He mentions barbarians and Scythians, and this might be a little um, archaic to some of us who might not know what this is talking about, but to those who were Greek and Roman, who were in these highly developed cities with, with highly developed systems of education and, and well-developed economies and structures and governments, they saw those tribes that were more uncivilized that lived to the north who spoke different languages and didn't abide by their customs as being barbaric. The Greeks and Romans were the ones of high culture. They were sophisticated, and they looked down and, and despised those who were uncivilized. Barbarians refers to those warlike groups 
whose language sounded unintelligible and unrefined to the Greeks. Actually, the word barbarian comes from bar, bar, bar. It just sounded like mumbo-jumbo to them to hear these people speaking these strange languages. And they saw them as inferior. That's who the barbarians are. The Scythians refers, actually, more specifically to one of these barbaric tribes. And the Scythians were the worst of the worst. They were notorious for their extreme cruelty and savagery. To be a Scythian was to be not just a barbarian, but a barbarian of the worst kind. Paul goes on then to give us, even beyond that, socioeconomic distinctions. He refers to those who are slaves and those who are free. Slaves in that culture were at best employees, but at worst were considered mere property, no more important than a mule or an ox, simply tools to be wielded according to their master's wishes. Often slaves were those who were either born into slavery, they had slave parents, or perhaps they were debtors who had no other way to pay off their debts. Perhaps they, some of them were criminals whose liberty had been forfeited. Some were prisoners of war taken in conquest. They had no rights. They had no freedom. Free people were the ones with rights. Free people were the ones with money. Free people were the ones with independence and legal status, power, and privilege. And so it's easy to see how there could have been an attitude of superiority among the free or perhaps an attitude of resentment and envy among the slaves. This list here that Paul gives us is not intended to be exhaustive. Paul says something similar to this formula in several other places, in Ephesians and Galatians and elsewhere. And he includes things there like male and female and and even other categories. But what Paul's doing here is simply pointing out not necessarily an exhaustive list of categories that we have to deal with. He's pointing out a certain type of mindset. The mindset that divides people up into different groups, the insiders and the outsiders, us and them. And we have our own divisions today, don't we? We have divisions today in our society of black and white, of Democrat and Republican, of the wealthy and the working poor, of male and female, of young and old, millennials and boomers, some among us who are highly educated and some who are barely graduated and everywhere in between. We have the intellectual elite and the blue-collar workers. We have the country folk and the city slickers, maybe even some wildcats and jayhawks here in our group this morning. And you can add whatever else you want to that list. But what does the text tell us? Paul gives us a straightforward denial. Here, here among the redeemed, among those whom God is renewing in the image of Christ, among those who have put off the old sinful self and put on the new, such categories of distinction do not exist. Such categories have no power in the church to erect and maintain barriers, no power to elevate some and hold down others. Paul says their spiritual significance is gone. It's not that you stop being Jewish or Greek or slave or free when you come to Christ any more than we stop being male or female when we come to Christ. Uh, It's simply that Paul is telling us you can't use these categories to divide the church into two classes. The items in this list, are they will always be part of our identity, always part of our life, part of our experience, In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible, Philemon, that deals with the broken relationship between a newly converted slave 
and his believing master. And they had to work through these things and figure some of these things out. But Paul's point, very simply, is that in Christ, these distinctions, though real, become minuscule. They become small and nearly irrelevant compared to who we are and what we have in Christ. It's the supremacy of Christ over and against all those other things. So much so, Jesus is so much more supreme, Paul says, that it becomes unthinkable for us to harbor contempt or attitudes of superiority or inferiority or to promote or tolerate division along these lines of a lesser identity and meaning. F.F. Bruce writes this, it's not only that the old sinful habits and attitudes are done away with in this new creation. The barriers that divided human beings from one another are done away as well. Christ is supreme, even in the way we categorize people. And among those who are redeemed, the old way of breaking people into groups based on nationality or ethnicity or culture, religious background, whatever it is, that's gone. The supremacy of Christ is seen in the spiritual equality and unity of the church. Paul upholds this truth by denying that worldly barriers have any meaningful significance in the church. But it's not just a denial that Paul gives us. He also gives us a, glory, a glorious affirmation. This affirmation, secondly, comes at the end of verse 11. He says, but Christ is all and in all. Christ is all and in all. This is his affirmation. Why are there no distinctions, Paul? Why should we not care about circumcised versus uncircumcised? Why is it no longer significant whether you're a slave or a free person when it comes to our fellowship in the church? Why does Paul assert this? Is he just being politically correct? Is this just Paul wanting everybody to be nice because, you know, we should all be nice? No, Paul has reasons. Reasons for denying one thing and asserting another. You see, formerly the identity that mattered is that we were in Adam. We talked about this last time together, putting off the old self. That old self identified with the first man, Adam. We were represented by him, identified with him, and we inherited our sinful nature from him, from Adam. But what happened? Do you remember what happened? Christ came the second Adam. And where the first Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Now through faith we have a new nature, a new representative, and we are identified eternally with Christ. And this is a, a world-changing, paradigm-shifting, life-transforming reality. Notice the fact that Paul doesn't assert a potential reality in verse 11. He doesn't say Christ can be all and in all. And he's not even giving us an obligation that Christ should be all and in all. No, Paul is simply telling us what is gloriously true, that Christ is all and in all. His statement here is emphatic. In the Greek text, it doesn't matter as much where the words fall in terms of order. You can actually rearrange things to bring out different emphases. And in the Greek text, this word Christ is the climactic and final word in the sentence. It could read this way if you were to put it in the same word order. That here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave. But all and in all is Christ. 
It's Christ. It's Christ. Christ is supreme. He is all. He is preeminent. And when Christ is present in his people, when Christ is the head of his church, when Christ is present as the groom with his bride, all those other things shrink down to their proper size. Christ is supreme over all those distinctions. When Christ came, he brought the blessing of Abraham to Israel, but also to the families of all the earth. Those who were circumcised were no longer the only ones who could rightly enjoy the gracious privilege of being called the people of God. That label now applies to all who are in Christ. When Christ came, the freedom that really matters, freedom from sin, freedom from death, and the bondage that we once experienced, as we saw in chapter 1, when we were in the domain of darkness, that freedom is granted to all, no matter what your socioeconomic status may be. In Christ, the riches that truly matter, the riches that are eternal that come through Christ, belong to all. Douglas Moo writes that those who belong to Christ constitute a new humanity in which the distinctions of this world, while not obliterated, are relativized. Because Christ is supreme. Christ is in all, Paul says. Salvation is nothing less than union with Christ through faith. His spirit dwells in us. And we are said to be in him. And this brings unity and spiritual relational equality. I love Galatians 3.27. Paul says something very similar. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's the Christ who lives in us who binds each one of us together. This is the foundational reality that brings spiritual equality and relational unity in the church. You know, those topics of equality and unity are hot topics in society today. Some of you may even got nervous when I started talking about this this morning. If you've been around our church very long, you would know not to be nervous about that. But we need to wonder here, is Paul just echoing the sentiments of 21st century Western culture? I don't think that's what's going on here. We need to be careful when we use words like equality and unity because sometimes we're working with two different definitions, the definition of the world or the definition of Scripture. We need to let the Scriptures form our thinking about what equality means and what equality requires because the world will measure and define equality differently than the scriptures will the world measures equality in economic terms those who have lots of resources and those who don't and some will see that as being a wrongful inequality the bible doesn't think that way the world will measure equality in terms of expecting there to be equality of opportunity that we should all have the same chances in life and society and education and things like that the world expects to see equality of outcome, that we all end up at the same place at the finish line and everybody gets a trophy. The world desires equality of power and influence, that everyone deserves the same amount of say-so. The world, therefore, resents any perceived privilege where one party has more money, more opportunity, or more power than another. And this is a big rabbit trail. We don't have time to go all the way down it. But let me just say this. Scripture neither promises nor demands that kind of equality. 
How does scripture measure and define equality? The kind of equality that matters. Well, biblical equality speaks to our standing before God. It's a spiritual category. Romans 10, 12 says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Why? For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Biblical equality is defined first and foremost in terms of our standing before God. Biblical equality is therefore a result of our commonly shared experience of salvation. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. It's our shared experience of coming to God through faith in Christ, receiving his spirit. That is how equality is defined in the Bible. Biblical equality is therefore the work of Christ. It's not something that we can necessarily create or accomplish on our own apart from Christ. It is something we must flesh out, but it's something that Jesus establishes. Ephesians 1.22 says that God has put all things under his feet, the feet of Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are united and filled and redeemed by Christ. So equality and unity in the church is divinely planned and is a blood-bought reality that is true for all who are in Christ. So we have to lay that foundation there. Then the question becomes, will this reality be lived out? Will we act in such a way that shows we believe this is really true? That we do stand on equal footing before Christ. That there are no meaningful distinctions between us because we've all come to share in the same spirit, the same grace, the same salvation. Because you can live in a way that denies that truth. Or you can live in a way that affirms and celebrates and embraces that truth. Paul lived in a way that embraced this truth. In fact, if you go to chapter 4 in Colossians, you'll see the various kinds of people that Paul lists as fellow laborers and partners in the gospel. He refers in verse 9 to a man named Onesimus, who is a slave. He refers to a man named Luke in verse 14, who is a physician, educated, more wealthy. He refers to the Jews, those who are of the circumcision, and to people who have Greek names, who are very obviously Gentiles. And Paul refers to all of these people as beloved, as fellow workers, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul simply sharing with us something that he practically lived out, something he believed enough to manifest in his life, in his decisions, in his relationships, in his speech. Christ is all and in all. I just want to pull out three quick implications from this little phrase that Christ is all and in all. And I think this will be helpful for us as we think about you know, our own desires and efforts to see unity and equality in the church practically lived out. Number one, Christ is necessary for true harmony and equality. Christ is necessary. There are some who want equality without Christ. There's some who want unity apart from the gospel. And there are some Christians who, out of their compassion, may be tempted to set aside Christ and his gospel for the sake of unity and a certain kind of perceived 
equality. But friends, the ministry of the gospel must never be ignored in an effort to pursue and try to produce something that only comes as a result of the gospel. We can never put the cart before the horse. Our efforts to encourage unity and equality in the church must be Christ-centered, must be rooted in the gospel. Christ is necessary for equality and unity in the church. There's not another better way. Christ is the only way to seeing this happen. But not only is Christ necessary, secondly, Christ is sufficient to reconcile and make equal. Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. Those who have Christ and have his gospel have the tools that are needed. The key to unity in the early church was not the abolishing of social structures. The key to unity in the church, the early church, was not the equalizing of economic disproportions. The key to unity and harmony in the early church was not the renouncing of ethnic identities or privilege. It was the embracing of the gospel of Jesus Christ and receiving our greatest identity in him. Friends, Christ is sufficient to reconcile and to make equal. And we minimize him and diminish him when we set Jesus to the side and try to build something without him that we think is better. And then third, I want to share this to encourage you. Christ is effective in his work of reconciliation. Christ is effective. What is seen imperfectly now in the church is the early signs of a perfect future. What is seen partially now in the church is a microcosm of what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth where we will see a redeemed and restored humanity, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who are worshiping the Lamb in perfect harmony. All sin and hostility eradicated forever. God in Christ, as we saw in chapter 1, is reconciling all things to himself so that in the end, Christ will be seen as preeminent. We believe this. Don't we believe this? This is our hope. This is our confidence. And this is what we eagerly look forward to. So what does this mean for us? What should we do right now in the meanwhile? If we believe this theological reality that we are one in Christ, equal in him, if we believe this good news that in the end we will all be united together worshiping Christ, what should we do right now? Well, like Paul, we must embrace this theological reality. Upholding the worldly categories of separation is a denial of Christ's work. It's a refusal to believe and celebrate what Christ is accomplishing in renewing us in his image to believe that Christ is all and in all. Faith in this truth and an embrace of it is a powerful antidote to the sins that we saw listed earlier in chapter 3, sins like anger and wrath and malice and slander and lying. And believing this truth of who we are in Christ is a powerful motivation to put on the virtues that follow that we'll see next time together, like compassion, and kindness, and humility, and meekness, and patience, and forgiveness. Friends, Christ must be supreme in the way that we relate to each other. The gospel must be allowed to impact all of life. There's no room in the church for sins like arrogance, and prejudice, and favoritism, snobbery, contempt, fear, bitterness, or resentment, or envy. If we elevate worldly categories in the church too highly, That minimizes Christ. It is unbelief. It is sin. 
And such sins will always characterize the world, but they should never characterize the church. We are to show the world a picture, a preview of the world that is to come, the kingdom that is to come. We give them a glimpse of the new creation in which Christ has reconciled us to the Father and to each other. We are those who are called, as Paul said earlier, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We are to be like the Colossians who we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, had love for all the saints, no matter what their background or station in life. So just as individuals must cast off sins that previously marked our life, so also the church must, must cast off the old barriers that used to separate us. Beware, beware in your own heart assumptions about who you could or couldn't be friends with in the church. Beware in your own heart that tendency to be comfortable with some of those barriers that we bring into the church with us like residue from the world out there. We ought to humbly yearn for the deeper experience of fellowship in the body among all who are in Christ. But perhaps more specifically for some of us this morning, we need to take immediate personal actions. For those who were formerly arrogant towards others, who are not like you, there needs to be confession and asking God to cultivate humility in your heart. Confess the sin of harboring animosities or prejudice that is not in keeping with the gospel we have received. For those who, were form who formerly mistreated others, there must be repentance and is seeking to see those relationships restored. The story of Zacchaeus shows us a beautiful example of what happens when someone comes to Christ and then recognizes they've sinned against others, and he is eager and glad to go back and make those things right when he personally has sinned against others. Repentance and reconciliation. Some of us may need to take those steps. For those of you who have been formerly mistreated by others because of the color of your skin, or because of your background or your culture. The gospel calls us to forgive. The gospel calls us to release envy, bitterness, and resentment, and to extend the grace and forgiveness to others that God has shown us, and to love. For those who formerly idolized class and culture and found your identity perhaps in lesser things, perhaps there needs to be this morning a repentance of idolatry and a relocation of your identity to be in Christ first and foremost. For those who formerly envied the supposed privilege of others, this morning God calls you to repent of covetousness and to pursue contentment in Christ because Christ is enough and Christ is supreme. And being found in Christ is what matters more than all those other things. In the early church, the gospel produced an amazing new thing previously unseen in that world. Greeks and Jews eating together, sharing the Lord's Supper together. Barbarians who were given honor in the church. Roman citizens who washed the feet of Scythians. Slave and free, serving side by side in the church, worshiping side by side in the church, and dying side by side as martyrs for the sake of Christ. How? Why? Because they knew that Christ is supreme.
It didn't require new laws in Rome to make this happen. It didn't require a redistribution of wealth to bring it about. It didn't require creating new churches catered to specific cultures and ethnicities. It didn't even require the abolition of slavery. This practical unity was the effect of a radical spiritual equality in Christ. It all starts there. It starts there. Christ is supreme over human divisions and worldly barriers. His redemptive work brings a spiritual equality and unity to all who believe. So let's praise our great Savior this morning for his gracious work of reconciliation, making us right with God and making us right with each other. And let's pursue together a more faithful expression of this theological reality in our day-to-day lives with one another, all for the sake of Christ, our supreme Savior, who is all and in all. Lord, as we look into your word this morning, we rejoice and we glory to see what you are doing in and among your people. You are reconciling people from various backgrounds who come from all different stations of life, and you've made us right with the Father through the shedding of your blood on the cross. We thank you for reconciling us to a holy Father in heaven, and we thank you for giving us a basis for fellowship and harmony in the church. I pray, God, that even as many voices around us seek to raise the alarm and categorize people and pit one group against another, I pray that we in the church would show the world a model of what real reconciliation and harmony and equality looks like. That it would be evident in our love, in our speech, in the way we serve each other, in the way we honor one another. I pray, God, that you would keep conforming us to the image of your Son. And Lord, for any among us this morning, for those who have never come to recognize Christ as supreme and never received his grace and mercy, I pray that today they would recognize that they are far from you and that the only way to be forgiven and restored is to confess their sin and come to the foot of the cross in faith. I pray that you would save sinners and add more to this new family, this new humanity that you are creating. So there will be more voices in the chorus that one day will gather around the throne and sing, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. You are supreme. Give us the grace to believe this and the power through your spirit to live in a way that testifies to it. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.